We'll hear God's word now to us from the Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and 4. Our sermon text this morning will begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 and continue through verse 1 of chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the wife speaking. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchman found me as he went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is a litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of his gladness of his heart. Now the husband says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that gaze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go up to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Our garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. 
Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Give him thanks for it. Our God, we praise you that you've not left us in this world without your revelation, revelation of your character, revelation of the way in which you have made us to serve you, revelation of the way in which through Christ we can now do just that. So we pray that this word would equip us. We would not only strengthen our, our doctrine of you and our knowledge of you, but grow us in love and, and obedience after Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. But when our oldest daughter was, was younger, there was exactly one joke that she knew. And you can imagine she therefore told it a lot. And it was a terrible joke. You probably heard it, a knock-knock joke. Person says, knock, knock, who's there? Banana, banana, who? Knock, knock, who's there? Banana, banana, who? And this goes on and on. Knock, knock, who's there? Banana, banana, who? Knock, knock, who's there? Orange, orange, who? Orange, you glad I didn't say banana. And just the worst thing about that joke is I'm the one who told it to her. So <laughs> I'm the one who had to listen to it for the next however many years. But if there's anything worse than a bad joke, it's explaining a bad joke. So let me do that now. What, what makes that joke? Uh, I'm not quite. I'm not sure it's funny. What makes that joke funny to a four-year-old? Well, of course, it's it's the repetition again and again and again. You get the same thing until at the end, all of a sudden, it changes and there's something uh, different, and it catches uh, the attention of the listener. There's actually something very similar to that, um, maybe on a higher level, going on at the very beginning of Scripture. If you read uh, through Genesis chapter one, you'll hear this refrain again and again and again: God makes something. Uh, and behold, says it is good. And it was evening and morning the next day. And every, every time the Lord makes something, he says it is good. It is good. Verse 3 of Genesis 1, it is good. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31. It's very good. God looks at everything that he makes in creation and says, boy, this is very good. But then the next time God passes judgment, if you will, on what he makes, he's he looks at chapter 2, verse 18. He looks at Adam and says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And so your ears are supposed to perk up. Everything has been good thus far. What, what, what? what could possibly be not good about this? Well, the Lord says, I will make him a helper fit for him. The Lord said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. What will solve this problem, this lack of goodness? A helper a fit for him. That, that word fit means uh, corresponding, matching, uh, interlaced, one who goes well with the other. And so, of course, the Lord does so. He creates Eve. And this leads to marriage <laughs> directly in chapter 2, verse 25 of Genesis, where the two become one flesh. So, there's a lot of things we can learn from the first couple chapters of Genesis, but we see one thing is that the goodness of creation reaches its peak, not in the, the solitude of Adam, but in the, the one flesh union of Adam and his wife, Eve. And our text from Song of Solomon chapters 3 and 4 this morning make that same point for us by exploring the goodness of the physical creation, including especially in marriage. And that interplay between it not being good to be alone as the woman finds herself at the beginning of chapter 3, 
and thus the goodness of the opposite of when the man and the woman come together later in our text. You may wonder, well, why care? Why, why is this important for us to hear this morning? I think believers can run into a couple dangers. One is we overreact to the world's excesses in this, in this realm. The world is obsessed with, with the physical and the sexual in, in every different way that it can come up with. And so sometimes Christians overreact to that and say, it's the spiritual that's really important. So we reject the importance of the physical. This has been a, a temptation of Christians for 2,000 years. For other branches of Christianity have perhaps lost the gospel and turned to only the physical. <laughs> their, their idea of salvation is to redeem the, the here and the now, this world, as opposed to looking for Christ to come and renew this world. Of course, another danger, of course, is to indulge the flesh while in ignoring the spiritual implications of its goodness. For if this is true, if the Lord made the physical world to be good and therefore to be enjoyed in certain ways in marriage, then any sexual activity outside of marriage is an abrogation of that goodness. So the goodness, therefore, has spiritual implications. So the main point simply is this. God created this physical world to be good, including in marriage and especially as redeemed by Christ. God created this physical world to be good, including in marriage and especially as it is redeemed in Christ. So we'll see this in, in three ways this morning. The, the author in these two chapters really works by ways of comparison. Three different comparisons going on. The first and the first five verses of chapter three are the uh, the comparison of absence, sort of the photo ne negative, as the woman cannot be with her husband. And so there's that first comparison. And then later, the second half of chapter 3 is the comparison of contrast. We have this contrasting figure of, of Solomon, who I believe is to be contrasted with the simple shepherd that we have seen in the first three chapters. And the third uh, set of comparisons comes in chapter 4, where the author works by simile and metaphor. Let's begin first in chapter 3, verse 1. We have this comparison of absence. We have this woman who's speaking of how she laid in bed by night, seeking my, the one whom my soul loves. Now, the question uh, the readers have when they come to this text is, is this a, a dream? Is, is this something that she dreams? Or is this something that literally happened and she was literally going you know, around town and in her pajamas, whatever it were, looking for her husband. Well, there's some hints in the text that this is, this is, this is a dream sequence. That's why it begins as she's uh, lying in bed. In fact, it actually says, on my bed by nights in the Hebrew. This is plural. It makes you think perhaps it's a recurring dream. As she uh, is probably you know, lying in bed next to her husband, but she's having this dream of absence, of separation, and if you think of how dream sequences often work, this is a, this is a favorite uh, tool of, of authors, of filmmakers, and often they'll, they'll put something in a dream sequence to sort of highlight a difference or a contrast with reality that really doesn't work in real life. I mean, just think of how many, uh, if you ever watch an MGM musical, there's going to be this sequence where the lights turn funny and the background gets fuzzy, and then maybe Gene Kelly's doing a weird dance. And it's not reality, 
but, but it's supposed to make uh, some sort of point about the relationship with whatever uh, he's going through in, in the real life of the film. Uh, or you could think of The Wizard of Oz. You probably realize that The Wizard of Oz is mostly a dream. <laughs> uh, Dorothy actually, don't want to give it away, but Dorothy never actually leaves Kansas. Uh, that's why the same actors who are at the beginning are, you know, the cowardly lion and etc. But what's the point? It's using a dream sequence to make a point about reality. And that's what's going on here. Uh, the woman is dreaming that she cannot find her husband, that she has to, to wander throughout the streets uh, to find him. And, and it is supposed to increase uh, the tension of this lack of goodness that is physical separation, that, that she cannot find her husband. She wonders where has he been? You know, she's going through the, the squares of the streets, going about town, seeking him, not finding him. Having to go to the watchman who would have been at the edge of the town, at the gates. You know, has he escaped town? Has he left? Has he been kidnapped? She's not sure. And then this interpretation is uh, perhaps confirmed by the place where she brings him when she actually does find him. She brings him to the bedchambers of her mother. You may think, well, that's kind of weird. Why did she bring him there? <laughs> but this is supposed to be an echo of, of the primordial place of fruitfulness, the original source of life from which she came, a place of safety, a place of purity, a place of, of innocency, in, in, sorry, innocency of marital love. So this is the place that she brings him to confirm the goodness of the physical relationship that she has with her husband. And thus the implicit undertone is that the speaker and her husband will continue to pursue the same activity in the bedchamber. That's why uh, the chorus reappears in verse 5. Every time this chorus in, in, in the Song of Solomon comes to warn the listeners to not to stir up not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. They're making the same point. That, that physical sexual pleasure between man and wife is powerful and good. And so the wait is worth it. That's why they show up. Not, not to say, what are you guys doing? No, it's to, to affirm the goodness of the man and the wife in their union by warning those who are not married away from it. We don't, uh, we don't put guardrails around things that are unimportant. We don't warn people uh, to wait on things that are not that big of a deal. And we put guardrails, we put important things in banks and in vaults and under lock and key not because we think they're unimportant or shameful, because of their value and their worth. And that's why the, the chorus comes in verse 5 uh, to put a hedge around this man and his wife the goodness of their activity in marriage. So that's, that's the first comparison that our author uses. And then suddenly in verse 6, you notice the scene changes. Now we're in the countryside coming up from the wilderness. We see this chariot or this litter. It's, it's probably, uh, you can imagine uh, men bearing Solomon on a, a, you know, a mobile throne, basically, is the picture supposed to get up. Uh, you know, men wearing perhaps by their arms or over their shoulders, carrying Solomon as he's going on a tour throughout the countryside. And this text right here is actually, believe it or not, one of the most controversial in all of the book because it is a point of interpretation. 
We're supposed to, we're not exactly sure what is Solomon doing here. You know, Solomon is mentioned very uh, rarely in the book that bears his name. There's uh, different explanations for what Solomon is doing here. Some say that he's showing up for his own wedding, which doesn't really make sense to what has come before. Uh, Some say he's coming actually to steal the bride, which is sort of the the super negative view of of Solomon that uh, some interpreters have of this book. But it seems to me that Solomon comes uh, here, presents himself as sort of a foil for the man and the wife who have been the main characters up to this point. You notice uh, they were rustic, they were rural, they were, in the, they were under the boughs of the trees, they were uh, sh- uh, watering their flocks, they were chasing after their sheep and goats, etc. in the first a few chapters of Song of Solomon. And in comparison to that, now you have King Solomon in all his splendor, his gold and his purple and his, his warriors and his crown and their swords and all these things. Uh, you know, the finest of wood uh, to make himself this carriage. And so his grandeur and his opulence and his power and his luxury are on full display for all to see. You know, what does verse 11 say? Woman of Jerusalem, go out and take a look at Solomon. And all his splendor. And all his opulence. Be reminded of his wedding. And immediately when you start thinking about Solomon and his wedding. The question perhaps pops into your mind. Well which one? (laughs) He only had 700 wives. Not to mention 300 women on the side. And so I don't, I don't think it's the marital bliss of Solomon that is being commended here. Later, in fact, chapter 8, verse 12, the text will remind us of Solomon's 1,000 women. First Kings tells us that these women pulled his heart away from the Lord, separated his first love of Yahweh from him. I think this scene in chapter 3 is supposed to contrast with the simple, unpretentious love of our main characters. Because yes, their, their love is simple. It, it doesn't need gold and silver and elaborate uh, modes of transportation or elaborate outfits. But it is fervent, these two, the shepherdess and his, her man. It is ardent. It is committed. One commentator writes this, here, here Solomon serves as a symbol, the pageantry of his post-wedding processional, along with what the readers knows of his ungodly love life, is contrasted with the unspectacular, single-minded, committed love of our everyday man and wife. Sol- Solomon's other name, Jedidiah, might mean beloved of the Lord, but it is the bride's beloved, him whom my soul loves, as she calls him in first one, who is greater than Israel's greatest king in all his glory. This author goes on, her king, which is what she describes him in chapter 1, verse 4, is worth getting out of bed to seek, to find, to bring home. So I believe here we have the the pompous harem of King Solomon with a thousand women. Now, even if you saw a woman every day, you're going to see a woman once every three years to cycle through that many women compared to the the Edenic uh, monogamy of the simple man and the simple wife. Uh, returning to the roots of the way in which God created marriage to be. 
between one man and one woman. That's, I think, the second comparison that our text gives us this morning, a, a comparison of contrast between King Solomon and all his regal robes and a simple shepherdess and her shepherd husband. And the third uh, set of comparisons is chapter 4. This uh, comparison using this uh, extended similes and metaphors in which the man compares his wife to all these various facets of the good physical world the Lord has made. You know, on one hand, we need to understand the text. We need to you know, get our minds around the ways in which these images work. But let's not get so uh, interested in that that we forget to appreciate the man's delight in his wife. I mean, that's the main point of this text. Is to, it's, it's to cause us to be in awe of how much this man is in love with his wife and is unafraid to declare it, unafraid to speak it to his wife. This is perhaps a challenge to us men who are reticent to open our mouths and praise our wives to their faces. But this is part of God's word to challenge us and to confirm uh, the goodness of the physical uh, nature of their relationship. Verses 1 to 7, you notice that he, he, he admires her physical beauty, comparing her to these different uh, aspects of God's creation you may wonder in verse 2, for instance, why he compares her teeth uh, to sheep. Uh, but there he's referring to the whiteness of their color. Uh, a highly prized white sheep would be quite valuable uh, for use in textiles. He's, he says, not only are your teeth white, but you have all of them. That's what he means, that none of them, uh, none, none of the uh, ones has lost its young. They all bear twins. Uh, the top tooth has its bottom tooth. This may seem funny to us, but remember, this is a day without dentistry. Uh, this is a day that when your teeth got rot, rotten and fallen out, you're not going to be able to replace it. Uh, there weren't any crest 3D white strips or any, you know, crowns or anything like that. So, so for a woman to have all of her teeth and then to be in rows and white was a sign that uh, she was attractive. <laughs> she was unafraid to smile and show her mouth. Her cheeks were like halves of a pomegranate. You slice over a pomegranate, it's red, and you know she's uh, well-colored. Her neck is like the Tower of David. Again, this may not be a way that you talk to your wife, but to have a, a, a towering neck in that day and age was a sign of strength. Uh, if she was one who, you know, would have to carry water a long distance, it would be good to have strong neck built in rows of stone. So in these, in these verses, he's, he is admiring her physical beauty. And in, in response in verse 8, you notice he then, because of that, offers her uh, physical safety, protection. He desires to, to guard and to defend his wife. That's why he calls her away from the mountains, from the peaks of Amana, from the peaks of Sinir and Hermon. He says, I call you away from the dens of lions, from the, from the mountains of leopards. These are all mountains in northern Israel, in Lebanon. These are places where uh, she was surely not literally there, but the image again is one of, of protection. Uh, these dangerous beasts in that day and age, yes, there were mountains, and, or there's still mountains, there were lions and leopards in Israel, and they would have dwelt in those areas. And he's offering her protection, offering her safety, Come with 
me, he says, from there. Because to me, your body and your soul are safe. We get a picture here of a man who is totally captivated, entranced with his wife. That's what he says in verses 9 and 10. You have captivated me. You've captivated my heart. My sister, my bride, uh, calling her his sister is a sign of intimacy in that culture. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Again, this is sensual language meant to encourage our understanding of the delight that this man has in his wife. And he returns again to describing her, her physical attractiveness in verse 11, her lips, her tongue, her mouth. In verse 12, he compares her to a locked garden or an unflowing fountain. Then in verse 15, he compares her to a flowing fountain. It's as if she is not ready for him, but as he woos her, she is ready uh, to receive him. So she seeks, he seeks to avail himself of her in verse 16 when he calls her to awake, O north wind, to blow upon my garden, to let its spices flow. And then you know, importantly, you may notice that there in verse 16, she responds. She invites him. She says, yes, let my beloved come to his garden to eat its choicest fruits. He doesn't merely, you know, force his way upon her, but he asks and she invites. She has no shame here in the physical nature of their relationship. Afterward, in chapter 5, verse 1, he exalts their lovemaking. Uh, scholars who study this text, you know, they count the verses and they count their words and they say that actually chapter 5, verse 1 is, is the midpoint, the very midpoint of the book. Seems to have been designed in such a way that this is the high point of the entire narrative. As the man exalts and delights and reflects on the goodness of their physical union. And again, we see that uh, confirmed by the community. As in chapter 1, verse 5, they commend the relationship to eat, to drink. Sorry just as they did in chapter 1. So what is this text driving home? Obviously, we've seen uh, the the delight in one another, the goodness of the physical aspects of their relationship. And why is this important? Is this merely here for our uh, amusement or for our imagination? Yeah, it is here for our delight in, in this couple and their relationship. There's more than that that the Lord is seeking to teach us here by His inspired Word. The first thing the text is trying to tell us is that the world is good because God created it that way. That it wasn't merely, uh, according to the world, the world was, you know, basically in turmoil and things that have gotten eventually to this place in which, you know, man was able to survive and it's always been this battle of the weak versus the strong. You no, know, Scripture tells us a very different story. That the Lord created this world to be good in all its aspects, and all the all the physical nature of animals and humans, of trees and rocks and oceans and birds. The second reason that the text tells us that the physical is good because the one thing that was not good 
the Lord solved, as we talked about in the introduction, by bringing man and woman together in a physical union. That when something in the, in the goodness of creation was found to be a less than ideal, if you were, the Lord didn't say, oh boy, we better uh, you know, try something different. No, he said, we're going to up the ante and, and bring man and woman together, that the two will become one flesh. Third way we see this is because after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against the Lord and his word, we see that the Lord doesn't give up on this physical creation. I mean, after all, Song of Solomon comes after Genesis 3. This is a post-fall book. This is a book given to, to men and women who live in, in brokenness, in rebellion, in sinfulness, and in a world that because of our sin is not good in many ways, but that doesn't mean that the Lord has given up on these things. For why else would he give us uh, such an extended picture a man and his wife in physical intimacy. No, brothers and sisters, in fact, far from giving up on this physical world, our God entered this physical world through Jesus Christ's taking on flesh. Scripture tells us that when the Lord took on flesh, it was not a temporary thing. Our assurance of pardon this morning was from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul stresses that once Christ took on flesh, he took on flesh forever. That even now we have a flesh and blood Savior interceding before the throne of God for us. That the goodness of the physical world was proven to us when flesh and blood were nailed to the cross. Christ could have said, you know, you all are so sinful. You have broken this world. I'm just going to do away with that and bring your souls to my side. But no. He came. He took on flesh. What does Scripture tell us? He took on the form of a servant, humbling himself, putting aside all the glories of heaven for the dirtiness of this world. Not merely to shame us, Yes, to bring shame to those who needed to be confronted with their sin. But far more than that, to save us physically. For just as Christ entered into the physical heavens forever, so will we. That the goodness of the physical world does not end when Christ returns. But what does Scripture tell us? That there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Christ had to take on flesh For one reason, because we have sinned and need a flesh and blood Savior. But Christ also took on flesh and blood to be united to us as people. You know, the the Westminster Catechism tells us that we are united to Christ, not merely in our souls, but in our very bodies. For instance, when we take the Lord's Supper, we we do not eat the literal flesh and blood of Christ, but it is represented and given to us in physical means. Reminding us so that when Christ returns, he will literally eat with us. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And friends, if Christ is physical, and if eternity will be so as well, marriage actually points the way forward to that. Perhaps you've thought about this before. In, in the gospel, you know that Christ tells us that in heaven, in the new age, 
we will not be given in marriage. That man and woman won't uh, take a spouse and bear children. You may wonder that that, that somehow uh, is a point against marriage. Well, if marriage is so great, why is there not marriage in heaven? Well, Scripture tells us that marriage was given to point our way forward to that reality. Scripture tells us that, that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church, that he is the bride, we are the bride, no, he is the bridegroom, we are the bride. And therefore, when that reality is permanent in heaven, we won't need marriage, not because marriage is unimportant, but actually it is so important that what it points forward to will be the eternal union of Christ and his bride. Friends, we in the, in the physical rocks and dirt and water and flesh and blood, new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy eternity with our Savior forever. You may notice at the end of our text that the speaker speaks many times of enjoying milk and honey. Did you notice that? Verse 11 of chapter 4, your lips drip nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And then again in chapter 5, verse 1, that highest verse in the entire book. I gathered my myrrh. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. What are milk and honey symbolic of in Scripture? The promised land. The land in which God gives his people to dwell. And what is that promised land itself a picture of? The eternal promised land. And God's people will dwell with them, not merely in a small strip of land in the Middle East, but the entire new heavens and the new earth. With the realm of our King, Jesus, and we will dwell with him there. So friends, yes, this scripture text has much to tell us about marriage. As we have seen, it points forward to even greater reality. That we have a creation that the Lord created to be good. And when because of our own sin, we marred that goodness almost beyond recognition. Christ took on physical flesh and blood to come, to save us, to die for our sins, to rise to a resurrection life that will be ours as well when he comes to bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this world that you have made. We thank you that when Adam and Eve sinned, you didn't wad it up and throw it away but you made a way for them, even in the garden, promising them physical salvation, guarding the way to the tree of life so they would not eat in this fallen condition, but promising later in Scripture that we would be reunited with that tree where we may eat forever. That you promised them one who would crush the head of the serpent and who has done so on the cross and will do so finally and fully when he returns and judges this world. Lord, we're so grateful that we are your people. So grateful that you have promised us the same resurrection body that Christ even now has as he intercedes for us. May that be our hope in this world. As we see its ongoing decay, we see brokenness, we see rebellion, we see illness and disease and infection. Remind us that you are actually not giving up on us or this world, but you're bringing us to the end of ourselves that we may be reminded again and again that our only hope is in you and your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.